you said recently that the problem in 2008 was not that the banks had been too free, but they had grown too dependent. In other words, you know, everybody thinks, oh, the banks just went loose and went crazy doing these crazy things and no one put reins on them. They got us all in trouble and the government wasn't there to put a clamp on it. And you say that they've grown too dependent on government over the last decades is the problem, not that they had been too free. So let me just... Let me just first of all say that our listeners know that that runs a very similar line to David Stockman about the corruption of capitalism. So let's go back a little bit. Where did capitalism come off the rails? And and if it did come off the rails due to, you give us a little background history and how we got to where we are today. But then I, I also want to circle back once you've done that and ask you a little bit about what problem were they trying to solve in doing that? But first... Tell us a little bit how we got here in terms of the history, how government has gotten, how Wall Street and the banking system and capitalism become so dependent and so liable to what the government's trying to do to quote-unquote help it. Sure, and thanks, Bruce, for having me on the show, and thanks to all your listeners for uh, putting some time to this topic. Well, people think of too big to fail as something that came out of the 2008 crisis, but when we look at the history of what went wrong with the banks and the financial system, we've really had too big to fail for 30 years, and we had it for 25 years before the financial crisis started. If you look back to the 1980s, In 1984, we had our first too-big-to-fail bank. In 84, a bank called Continental Illinois, which was the seventh or eighth largest bank in the country, depending on whose list you look at, they started to, they had made some very bad loans, very bad investments, and they started to go under. And what should have happened is the FDIC should have just protected small depositors and everybody else, the large bondholders, the uh, other large depositors and other large lenders, they should have had to go through bankruptcy process and perhaps uh, take some losses if, if there wasn't enough equity to absorb the losses. And that is that is how we had bank failures from the 1930s to the 1980s. The banks failed. Nobody got bailed out except for if you got a few thousand dollars in the bank you get your money back, and that that was pretty good, solid policy. 1984, we changed that. The Reagan administration, the Federal Reserve Chairman, Paul Volcker, Mm -hmm. the FDIC chairperson at the time, uh, all said, we can't let Continental fail because the banking system has changed. They've got bondholders from Japan. They've got bondholders from all over the world. They're very reliant on short-term money. So if, if they fail, other banks that are reliant on short-term money, these global investors will pull their money out of these banks, too. And so just to be careful, we better guarantee all of these large global bondholders and guarantee the large depositors, and we won't let it fail through the normal way of doing things. Now, in the short term, maybe they made the right decision. If the bank had failed and we had a financial crisis, we could have gone back into recession in 84. We were just recovering from the recession of, uh, that had ended in 1982. Yeah. But over the long term, it was the wrong decision because if you're an investor, after that, you knew that if you put your money into a large global bank, uh, if you were a bondholder in this bank or you had large deposits in this bank or you invested in the money markets, you knew that the U.S. government would come and bail you out, that they wouldn't let a very large bank fail through the normal process. And we saw that through the SNL crisis. Large banks were bailed out in a different way than small banks, which just went through the FDIC process, and that different way generally involved protecting the large bondholders and large depositors. And so we effectively started to subsidize big banks by informally 
guaranteeing their lenders and their large depositors. So it is no wonder that people started saying, well, it's pretty safe for me to buy a, a bond in a bank, and the banks just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and that it's sort of a straight line there to 2008. A few other events in between, uh, the bailout of long-term capital management, 1998, they pretty much just... Which was a hedge fund. It wasn't even a bank. Right, and that was an interesting case because the... People said, well, it's not a bailout because there's no federal money involved, but this hedge fund should have just gone bankrupt. Federal Reserve was afraid to see it go bankrupt, so they forced all these banks to come together and say, okay, you banks are going to bail out this hedge fund. Now, at the time, they could do it, but a few years later, the problem had gotten so big that the banks could no longer bail themselves out. They they needed, and these were investment banks. These were not old-fashioned commercial banks. And so it's no surprise that a few years later, every crisis it gets a little bit bigger than the last one, and it all culminated in, in 2008 so far. And this, this really, I mean, in its most basic form, it has to do with how toxicity must wash out of the system and how when it doesn't wash out of the system it just gets worse or it gets the contagion grows i mean is that a correct concept yes if you malinvestment and toxicity being of the same we have a policy of not allowing anyone to take their full losses you know if you look at 2008 Housing prices were way too high, and they fell, but they probably should have fallen more. Instead, the U.S. government, under both Bush and Obama, it's not really a partisan, you know, if we mm-hmm. get rid of the Democrats, we'll fix things. If we get rid of the Republicans, we'll fix things. It's really a, a nonpartisan problem. Is We want to protect people from losses. And so instead of just letting house prices fall and letting the financial institutions take the defaults on all of this debt, we started programs allowing people to put 3% down to buy a house with government insurance. And, of course, the Federal Reserve has been pushing mortgage rates down since since 2007. Record low mortgage rates last year. You can still get a mortgage for under 4%. And so rather than say house prices are overvalued, they need to go down so that people can afford to buy a house, we just we have these government policies that allow people to borrow more and more and more money so they can pay these inflated prices. Same thing you see with with the stock markets. Uh, you know, China is trying so hard to keep its stock market bubble inflated because they, they don't want people to be upset when they lose their money. They don't want people to lose their life savings. They don't want people to lose jobs because this inflated asset market mm-hmm. is propping up Chinese companies. You know, they borrow against their stock and they hire people. We have had, before 2008, we wouldn't allow people to take their losses. But since then, we've really doubled down on this policy and we have created for ourselves a global uh, problem. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, particularly when it comes to China, and I'm sure that this question is rhetorical and obvious, but why don't we fear the rise? <laughs> you know, why don't we feel the rise Why don't China? we fear the rise? Why, When we see the, the, the Shanghai up 60% on the year and the Shenzhen up 120, yeah. how come that doesn't scare us? Oh, I see what you're saying. Why, why aren't we afraid when the market is going up rather than when it's going down? Yeah, yeah. I think it's a great point. You know, the doubling of a market in a short time period is just, it's never a good thing. And, you know, people often say, well, 
it's it's some of it is based on fundamentals. We have technology revolution, and that's true. But if prices go too high, the correction is always going to be very very painful. You know, you should never, as a personal investment rule, you shouldn't put money in the stock market that you're going to need for the next ten years. You know, if people say I want to invest in the stock market, the first thing is to build yourself up some savings so that you've mm-hmm. got emergency money. You know, don't put money in stocks until you've got that. You should be able to withstand a stock market fall. These people who sold their houses and put all of their money that they need right now into the stock market, whether it's in China today or whether it's, it was the U.S. back in uh, 1929, that is never, never a good idea. Yeah, absolutely. In its essence, then, if we if we have this urge to keep people from having losses, if you know, I mean, this runs a lot of levels. Who cares about some big multimillionaire investor who's bought bonds or some hedge funds that bought bonds and banks and they're going to take losses? But it seems like the little guy, uh, the, the, the real destruction and the potential political upheaval and the blood in the street comes from uh, the, the lower end of the spectrum who loses everything. Then they have nothing to lose when we have chaos in the society. So... What problem are we trying to solve in the business cycle or the investment cycle? What, what's the problem that we're trying to solve that we've maybe been applying the wrong solution of the government will always be there to socialize the losses? Well, I mean, the, the main problem that we're trying to solve is that everybody should have a job and everybody should have enough money to live on. I mean, that is a very broad, broad goal, and there are many different ways you can get there. You know, some people would say we shouldn't subsidize any jobs. If you make minimum wage, you should go out and get yourself a better education and a better job. Other people would say government should do income transfers, which we do, mm-hmm. and it's top up low wage jobs with extra income. You know, so obviously many, many different ways to get there. But the basic societal goal is everyone is working, everyone has enough money to live and to also support themselves in, in retirement and so forth. The problem is we're not dealing with a lot of challenges that we face. You know, what what started to happen back in the 1980s? Wages started to fall. You know, 60% of Americans don't make any more than they made 35 years ago when you adjust for inflation and two owners, you know, the family today, you need two people making the same amount of money that one person could go to work 40 years ago and make all the money the other person could stay home. And That's so not, not my imagination. That's a true statistic. Yes, that you can, you can look at the U.S. Census. Uh, I, I wrote a piece for the last issue of City Journal, uh, at, it's at city-journal.org, uh, mm-hmm. called Failure to Thrive, and just citing some of these statistics that income has not grown. And of course, if you're a single parent, you're not, you can't compare like to like. If you are a single earner today, it's probably because you're not married. You are making one income and struggling to raise kids, whereas 40 years ago, oh, yeah. single earner was the man. He went off to work. The wife stayed home. You know, some people like that. Some people don't. There are different benefits and drawbacks to the way we do things today. But what is not debatable is that one person on average makes less money than, than he or she did 40 years ago. And why is that? 
the factory jobs were either automated or they went abroad. You know, back in the 60s, 70s, they left the north for the south, and then they started leaving for uh, Asia. Uh, the so, world's become a more competitive place. We own yeah. the world after World War II. Right, and we didn't really say, well, we, we have serious problems. You know, if you lost a factory job probably never going to get a better job you know we glossed over all of this for years and years and what we did was say people aren't making any more money but you know what they they can borrow more money so i mean mm-hmm. 40 years ago a credit card was an unusual thing you know it, it, it people would have to get a credit card so that they could rent a car or stay in a hotel or things like that but you didn't just sort of pile up your living expenses on a credit card when we started to liberalize the mortgage market, people could borrow against their credit cards, and then when they ran up too much debt, they could take equity out of their houses and use that to pay down the credit card debt. So people were using the rising value of their houses as a way to subsidize their day-to-day living expenses. And, you know, the same thing with borrowing to buy a car. Uh, you can look at the Federal Reserve. Yeah, no, it's, it's a remarkable pivot that you're bringing up, yeah. which is that as incomes have decreased, Access to credit has grown. Yes, and anybody so, can borrow money, and that did, did not used to be the case. Yeah, absolutely. And, right, and so people just sort of stay permanently in debt, and it's not just the good kind of debt. Like, it's, you could never save up the money to buy a house, and so it's fine if you borrow maybe two or three times your annual income, and then you really work hard on paying that debt off. You know, the goal of a mortgage, if you ever watch Death of a Salesman, the goal of the mortgage is to pay the mortgage off. You know, you don't want to be stuck 30 years later still owing money on the house, but that is a position a lot of people in their 50s and 60s are in. Mm-hmm. And things like borrowing for a car, you know, there, there should really be no need for that. Borrowing for education, people used to work part-time jobs and work in the summer to pay for their education, but these costs have got out of control, even as people's income has stayed the same or gone down, and so people made up the difference with borrowed money. And it kind of, by 2008, they had just borrowed so much money. I mean, there was nobody left to buy a house who hadn't bought a house, but the government has tried to solve this problem with even more debt. So then how does that exacerbate the swing of the, the natural swing of a business cycle, which will have growth and then there'll be losers that come in late on growth or malinvest in growth that's eventually going to contract and then some people have to get hurt? How is that? How has that swing in American uh, families and the way that they uh, support their lifestyle, how has that exacerbated the result of the business cycle? Well, I think some recessions, it's probably made better. If you, if you look back in 2000, 2001, when the tech bubble burst, and then after 9-11, uh, George W. Bush said, go out shopping. If you want to be patriotic, you should go out to the mall and, and buy things. You know, the government was terrified people would stop spending because they were just feeling bad. And so what did the Federal Reserve do? They pushed mortgage rates down so that people's house values went up. We kind of started the housing bubble, and over the next few years, people felt wealthier because the value of their house was going up. So they did keep up their consumer spending. If you didn't have this borrowing culture, we probably would have had a much deeper recession. But it's sort of a short-term gain at the cost of a bigger problem in the long term. I mean, at some point, we've got to say we just cannot keep borrowing money from the rest of the world to maintain our consumption. We have to learn how to start producing and exporting more again. And we also need a way for people to be able to to maintain a middle-class lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let's carry this forward a little bit. 
I want to talk about if our problem here is that we've socialized the risks and we've made the risks less visible uh, and less scary. And, and there's people out there doing things with our money or our economy's money, whether it's our money at the bank, whether it's the great investments we're so sure are on solid ground when we get them to find out that one day uh, Wall Street isn't what it appeared to be. Help me understand the current paper trail between the low interest rates we have today and what the government policy is or the Fed policy more succinctly, how does that create the current Wall Street bubble? Help me help me understand the paper trail here because the brokers are going to talk about good earnings. There's great earnings. That's what there is no bubble. The earnings are fantastic. But help me understand how maybe we get from cheap money at the Fed to inflated stock prices, where that trail is. Sure, and uh, you know the price to earnings ratio is is still pretty high, and also how are companies making these earnings? They have really managed to grow their profitability over the past six years through cost cutting. You know, it's a massive, massive cutting of employees in Western countries and hours and benefits. And so, is that it's wonderful that earnings are good, but if you are trying to earn money working at one of these companies, it's it's not so wonderful. But I think you know how. And as to the broader question, how does the Fed help to create a bubble? Yeah. Since 2008, what did we see the Federal Reserve start to do? Cut interest rates, and we've never had interest rates at zero before. Now we've had zero percent Federal Reserve interest rates for going on well over half a decade now. And people may say, well, wait a minute, interest rates aren't at zero percent. You know, I can't borrow for zero percent. My credit card is nineteen percent. My uh, my mortgage is is four percent. But the banks can borrow more or less for free. In fact, sometimes they have to pay money to keep their money at other banks because there's just so much cash out there. You know, people, the financial institutions have no idea what to do with all this cash. And the Federal Reserve's answer is, well, we'll give you even more cheap cash. So where does all this money end up? Ends up in the stock market around the world, not just the American stock market. Ends up in global real estate markets. You know, cities like New York, London, even LA to some extent have their uh, high-end real estate bubbles. But Nicole, I, I think the trail goes a little bit uh, obscure. In other words, are you saying that banks are investing in stocks or banks are investing in real estate? That's where I'm. I, I sometimes on our show with our listeners try to really dig scratch a little bit deeper which is okay the banks get free money but are we saying that the banks are buying stocks they're really they are investing their clients money and the clients can't get any return you know, if you want to buy uh, a bond in a bank or you want to buy a CD or you're looking for some kind of safe investment there's no such thing you'll be making 0% on your investments, you know, you can't make any interest. Oftentimes, the fees on your bank account are more than the interest, and so the banks say we've got hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars of our clients' money to invest. We will encourage people to purchase real estate or to purchase riskier bonds or to to go into the stock market because they need to make some kind of return. But but if I may, I don't invest through my bank. So now, and maybe we need to sort of parse out again. This is yes, a, and the language of I yeah. mean, one of the problems is Glass-Steagall really it, it ended the difference between banks and a lot of 
things that we don't think of as banks. I mean, brokers. Investment banks, brokerage firms, and, and so forth. So, but so, certainly traditional old-fashioned banks, they lend money to real estate projects based on rising values. You know, they, mm-hmm. they will invest in things like municipal bonds and so forth to try to get some kind of return. The more money there is chasing after these financial instruments, you push the value of these instruments up, and then it's harder and harder to make a good return. So you end up in the riskiest markets. Sure. And I think we understand that, but I think I think what we keep working on, and by the way, I have to tell you, one of the best schematics verbally described on this I heard recently was actually Carl Icahn on Fox News, and he, he laid down a very clear schematic on exactly the companies that have great earnings have done a lot of acquisitions, and if they get cheap money to go buy an acquisition, uh, they're just sort of using money to improve yes. their earnings, but not actual exchange with the public. Right. That is a good example. You know, the the, the uh, banks, mostly on the investment banking side, raise money for mergers and acquisitions that can be done with debt. You know, go out to investors and say, you can put some money behind this acquisition. And so all of this cheap borrowed money pushes up that asset values, whether it's the value of a bond. You know, you, you have to pay $105 for a bond that's only worth $100 face value, or the stock market value goes way up, real estate markets go way up, and investors all over the world, they, they, they're chasing the same assets with more and more cheap borrowed money, and so the asset values don't bear much resemblance to reality. Yeah. Where is the risk in the banking system or the overall system, where do you see the crack potentially happening that could bring us to our knees again uh, in the current circumstances? Well, the is there enough liquidity if people want to start selling these assets? You know, China may be a test of that, but people who have invested in high-quality corporate bonds or municipal bonds or uh, bond funds, you know, the, the ETFs that themselves invest in bonds, it's easy to buy things when the value is going up. What if suddenly everybody wants to sell these things because interest rates are rising or they don't think these investments are as safe as they were? Would the market fall precipitously and you know, cause people to be concerned that things that they invested in that they thought were safe are not so safe? I mean, that's a a risk any time, really, but it, it is exacerbated as this uh, the years since 2008 go on, we're just on schedule for just a normal cyclical recession at some point. You know, we'll, we'll be lucky if, if we have that. It, could we have a worse financial crisis? Also quite possible. But I think, you know, people tend to, they're always worried about when is the bubble going to burst, you know, what's going to happen. I think the, the bigger issue facing us is how do we provide people with middle-class jobs without relying on these constant bubbles, you know, whether mm-hmm. it was the tech bubble, the housing bubble, now this global asset bubble. We have a difficult time just sort of maintaining ho-hum markets and allowing people to to make a decent living through that way. So uh, what, what do you see as, um, what, what do you see as, well, let, let me just summarize that for a minute before I ask you my yeah. question. So, 
So we have we have a couple different areas here, and it's interesting because uh, I think as a, a, an academic and as an e- economist, where you are at in a university, your focus is uh, quite often the the very macro picture about jobs and the economy. And of course, we have a lot of guys out here, and they're worried about their their statements. Okay, so I want to merge these two worlds because they are in fact connected. Yeah. But I guess so. When we talk about risk, oh, I know what I want to ask you here. So, okay, we could have a, a stock crash. That's fine. You know, maybe we need to. Maybe some rich guys lose part of their portfolio. Who cares? Yeah, and I would also say, you know, if you're a middle-class person or even an upper-middle-class person and you're sitting at home thinking, oh, my goodness, what if the stock market crashes? I've got all my money in stocks, and so I'm very worried about this. Is it going to happen or not? You know, that's that's not a good question to be asking yourself. I mean, you really you should be in a position where you don't care if the market crashes. You know, if, if you've got so much money in stocks that you can't withstand a market crash, then that's your problem. The problem yeah. is not whether the market's going to crash or not. So here's the place where it transitions, where the entire country gets caught in the grip, and that is where a stock crash, recession, fallback correction turns into a banking crisis to to where we are then looking at we can't get more than $60 a day out of our ATMs. So so where's where's the risk in the banking sector or help me understand how what we're worried about a little uh, or little or big stock market bubble for investors how might where we're at today how could that induce a banking crisis that grips everybody? How's that connection well, make? It has to do with how much debt is behind a bubble. When the tech bubble burst, it wasn't that bad, partly because there are very strict limits on how much you can borrow against the stock market. You know, we're seeing the problem in China because they don't have these strict limits. But average person in America can't go and borrow hundreds of thousands of dollars to speculate on on the stock market. You know, there are strict requirements to put 50% of the cash up behind these purchases. Most people don't have that much cash to speculate on on stocks. And when the market goes down, there are the broker will call you and ask for more money. If you don't have it, they'll sell the stock. And these came out of the depression and they work pretty well actually. We haven't had a depression caused by a stock market crisis in this country and well, uh, nearly a century. You're looking at uh, 80, 86 years, I guess. And so uh, that works well. The problem with the housing market was you could borrow against the whole value of your house. So people had a $300,000 house. They had borrowed $300,000 against it, and the value went to two hundred and two fifty. You owe more money than you have. And so suddenly... You may not be able to pay your debt. If enough people can't pay it, the banks start to have serious, serious problems. And even if you can pay your debt, you'll be thinking, I'm not going to go out to eat. I'm not going to get my nails done. I'm not going to buy clothes. I'll only buy clothes for my kids because they're growing, but I'm not growing. You know, I'm not going to take my vacation. And so consumer spending really slows down. And so all of the, these people mm-hmm. who provide these services, they either lose their jobs or they're making less money themselves. And so then they do the same thing. They can't go out and spend money. So it turns into kind of a vicious cycle. And that's, uh, that has to do with how much debt people have borrowed behind these assets. You know, the bad news for now is... We, after 2008, we never got rid of our addiction to debt. You know, consumer debt today is at record levels. Why is the economy doing well? You know, the SUV sales way, way up. Car sales way, way up. Why? Because people are borrowing money at record low rates to, to buy these vehicles, and these create hundreds of thousands of jobs. If we can't borrow this much money, those jobs will go away, just like they did last time. 
And, and you know, uh, let me just pull that forward a little bit. I don't know if, if you're fully informed or have the numbers on this, but there's several layers of debt. Now, you talk here about consumer debt, but when, I'm, when we're looking at what is the risk in banking today, there's also business debt. There's also something that we didn't have in the Great Depression, which is financial sector debt, which is just debt that is leveraged to invest or, or yes. cause other debt. Uh, wouldn't those actually be greater risks today than consumer debt to the banking sector? Uh, well, a lot of this debt is someone's someone's investments is it's the money that you borrowed. Somebody else borrowed so yeah. that they can lend you that money. So, <laughs> if if you if you look at say we've got ten trillion dollars worth of mortgage debt in in the country, or maybe twenty five trillion dollars worth of uh, total. Uh, uh, debt. So, but you wouldn't necessarily add those together because if the bank lent you money to borrow a mortgage, the bank borrowed money from depositors or from bondholders. So, consumer debt kind of mirrors financial sector debt. If people aren't paying their mortgages or they're not paying their credit card or their home loan debt, uh, that that hurts the bank, and that in turn hurts the investors who lend money to the bank. Yeah, I guess. And the same, you know, c- c- company debt. Corporations, you know, large corporations, they're, they don't have a huge debt problem. They've borrowed money in the past few years because interest rates are cheap, but they've got all this money stowed away overseas. So mm-hmm. they're, they're not, they have more debt than they did a few years ago, but they don't look like consumers. I mean, the corporation's problem is they have too much money and they don't know what to do with it. Their debt problem is more when consumers can't borrow, they stop buying corporate products. Yeah. But I think I think the reason I bring this up and the reason I keep kind of picking at it is I think that if if the average person looks at the housing market back in 07, mm-hmm. we, we all knew some sort of mania was occurring. Uh, buy for nothing, flip, and everybody gets rich on real estate, and that's the new uh, that's the new economy. Stupid. Sure. Uh, I don't think we see that mania going on, so I think there could be a little bit of an obscurity to to the average person about why the banking se- banking sector is probably not at risk anymore. Because if we understand that debt is it's the debt that's involved in the the inflated bubble and if the bubble breaks and that debt starts to break well i don't see a lot of houses that are uh, being flipped like this anymore and all that mania so i don't think the banking sector's at any risk my sense is and correct me if i'm wrong my sense is that it's a different kind of debt today that that could have the banking sector on the edge am i wrong or am i right about that no i i think the the overall problem is we have pushed asset values back up. So there may not be a housing bubble in the sense that between 2000 and 2006, house prices may have doubled. They haven't doubled again, but they still may be at values that are not realistic. And so we've had, I guess the housing bubble peaked in 2006, so we've had almost a decade of collapse and stagnation in the housing bubble market. Uh, or, or in the housing market, could mm-hmm. if we have another problem and interest rates go up, do house prices then just go back to stagnating or growing very very slowly? And it takes it takes people even longer to make up for all the losses that they suffered in two thousand six. 
so I think it's a different problem in that there's not a mania that's driving consumer spending, but there is a recovery that makes people feel better, and is the recovery real? I think with other global asset markets, you know, the stock market, the high-end real estate market, the valuations, it's hard to say they have anything to do with fundamentals. Yeah. And we have a huge, huge disconnect between the value of the stock market, the high-end real estate market, and so forth, with the amount of money that people are, are making, the health of the average worker. It looks nothing like the health of these asset values. Yeah. Is the Chinese bubble, is the Chinese asset bubble uh, influencing our uh, high-end real estate bubble? Sure. The... For years and years, wealthy Chinese individuals, they've wanted to put money overseas. How did they get wealthy? Because they started trading with us. They were able to hire a lot of people who once did jobs in America. Exporting products and services to the U.S. made some people very, very rich, and they took their money and they put it back into New York City apartments or a house in in Los Angeles or a, a, a house in London and so forth. So some of that money is recycled back to us in the form of higher asset prices. And I want to just talk about global risk here, and then we'll wrap this up. Um, in a nutshell, tell us what's going on in China. Well, uh, the Chinese after 2008, they kind of had the opposite problem that we had. You know, they they have a export-based economy. They employ hundreds of millions of people exporting products. And so if their export partners, if the U.S., if Europe, if they're cutting back on their consumer spending, they're not borrowing as much, their economy loses jobs. And they did not want that to happen for a lot of reasons. So they started putting more and more of that money... uh, trying to keep it at home, you know, building apartment complexes, building subway systems, building infrastructure, some of which is needed, some of which is really not needed right now. Uh, and then even that has started to peter out over the past couple of years. You know, they have their own real estate bubble and excess and so forth. And so they've been encouraging people to put money into the stock market. You know, borrow a lot of money. And this is a case where Chinese banks do let people borrow money and put it into the stock market. You know, this is a reform wow. that we enacted after the great depression but they were going in the other direction because they want people to feel wealthy so that they're spending money they're investing money and now the problem is it's gotten so out of control the stock market goes down a lot of middle class people are going to be very very upset at the chinese government so you know they've got this this is not unique to china all countries as we see have financial problems and crises and so forth but this is not something that the chinese people have experienced is a is a modern market crash and a loss of wealth. So it's not it's no better for them than it is for any other country that has massive job losses and so forth after one of these things crashes. Yeah, it almost seems like they've gone from the slow train wreck of the real estate yeah. uh, market to the fast train wreck of stocks. Yeah, and so it's not obviously not very good for them, not good if you are a person in China trying to make a, a living, but probably not very good for us either because these are global markets. You know, one market doesn't go up while the others go down. Yeah. Okay, let's let's move on globally here for a minute. What's going on in Greece, and can, can Greece get fixed? Is, is there going to be an extension solution to Greece, or um, is, is it a lost case? Well, Greece's problem is, I mean, there's a lot of problems. You know, every country has problems, but their their main problem is that they borrowed way too much money. 
they owe 175% of their gross domestic products. You know, countries in the West, they may owe 50 to 75%. Japan owes more money than Greece, but most Western countries do not. Mm-hmm. They cannot pay back this borrowed money. You know, they could do, they could do twice as much austerity as they've already done, and they still can't pay back this borrowed money. You know, sometimes you just cannot pay back the money that you owe, and it's the lenders who should have thought of this before lending this money. And so they will have to default on, on I mean, they, they did default, but they will have to permanently default and take some, the lenders are going to have to take some real losses on, on this debt. After that, they've got the normal problems of, you know, not having a competitive enough economy, you know, their retirement benefits, although they've raised the retirement age and so forth, they could still do more of, of that. Uh, so they've got, you know, normal kind of profligate country problems, the problems that an aging, aging country has in supporting its retirees. But most of all, the euro allowed other European investors to lend them way too much money without ever thinking, is this a stable environment to lend money into? So what's our risk? What's our concern about the frailty of Europe? I mean, how much can we really be affected by what happens over there? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons why we could be affected. I mean, first of all, we have a Western defense shield, you know, whether it's working with NATO or working uh, with France and Northern Africa or working with uh, Britain on some of the other global defense issues. You know, the defense costs money, and if these countries are not growing, they're not they're not putting their two percent share of GDP to NATO like they're supposed to. You know, non-NATO countries maybe not investing as much in their defense, so it makes the world a little bit less safe if they are not investing enough money because they don't have the money to do that. And I also think you know, on a less grave basis, if Europeans aren't doing well, they're not traveling, they're not spending money here, they're not buying our products and and services and so forth. You know, in general, it is in our interest to have a healthy, sustainable Europe and Asia. Here's a final question. With where we're poised today in the world, we look at China, I mean, we've just got this global bubble. We've got a bubble in the U.S. from zero interest rates. We've got a Chinese bubble, and then China is letting everybody borrow money into stocks until the whole thing collapses. We have Greece and Europe in a, in a posture where they are going to have to default, and the world's going to have to change. Um, this is a little bit of a, I don't know what, rhetorical or philosophical, but my question is, are things going to have to get worse before they get better? Well, we don't have political parties that are very honest with the challenges that we face. You know, everyone always says, oh, we should invest more in education. Well, we invest a lot of money in education. It has not created the middle-class jobs that, that we need. You know, the presidential election doesn't seem like it's going to be very fruitful in terms of new ideas and so forth. And so, you know, will things get worse before they they get better? It, it seems like we'll just keep going away but, uh, along the same way as we have and sort of have to hope that we don't create for ourselves another big financial crisis. But do you think we will? I don't know. I don't know the future any better than, than, <laughs> than anybody else does. But the fundamentals are not terrific. You know, people, middle-class people need to make more money. Home prices need to become much, much more affordable. They are still unaffordable, even despite the drops that we've had. And people have not saved enough for their retirements either. And that's another looming issue is how do we support the long-term retirements of the baby boomers and so forth. But stocks look great. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but they do, don't they? 
And yet we have these fundamentals that uh, haven't been confronted. I guess that's not a question, is it? Nope. <laughs> okay. Hey, I had a lot of fun. I really appreciate your oh, time. Oh, me too. Very good questions.